Why are you here? Maybe you're here because you really are engaged in worship, and worship is your thing. Maybe you're here because you're religious, and it just seems right. On the religious day, this was part of your tradition, and so you needed to do something religious, because everybody knows there's not enough religion in the world. Maybe you hate religion, and you're one of those spiritual people. And it's just like there's something in your spirit that says there's got to be the big spirit in the sky. and i got to find a way to get in touch with that spirit or those spirits. Maybe you're new to this. You're wondering, why do these people sing so much? Maybe you're confused by this. Maybe you're a pro at this. Maybe you're, you've been doing this religious thing on Sundays for a long, long time. Maybe you're like the people in Athens. And the best thing you could do is change gods. Maybe the best thing you could do today is worship the unknown God. Not the one that your parents necessarily taught you, not the one that you've grown up learning about in Sunday school, not the one that you may see on TV, not the one that you read about in the books at Barnes & Noble. Maybe you've just been engaged in this worship, spiritual, religion stuff, and it's been a huge part of your life, but the best thing you can do is throw that all out the door and bow before the unknown God. Paul's going to present that to the Athenians. I get to present it to the Grenvillians. Let's now read the text and see if I can prove my point to you. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. And he reasoned in the marketplaces every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what is this babbler talking about? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Because Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know what, therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul took advantage of it. Standing in the midst, he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that you in every way are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. And I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This is the God I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it. The God who is Lord of heaven and earth. The God who does not live in temples made by man. The God who is not served by human hands. The God who needs nothing. It's the God who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It's the God who made from every man, from one man, every nation 
of mankind to live on the face of the earth. It's the God who has determined and allotted periods and boundaries and dwelling places. It's the God that people should seek, perhaps feel or grope their way towards Him. He's the God that should be found. <laughs> and He's actually not far from each one of us. For in this God, we live and move and have our being as some of your own poets have said, we indeed are His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The time of ignorance God overlooked. But now this God... He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has already fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. He will judge the world in righteousness by a man. Who is this man? When He is appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising that man from the dead. And now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. Paul went out from amongst their midst. But some men and women joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Arapagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others along with them. So Paul has ministered in Philippi. We preached on that last week. The Spirit led him to the city. The Spirit led him to the river. The Spirit led him to a woman named Lydia. The Spirit opened her heart. Revival happened. Isn't that really, really good news? It's always really good news when converts are made. And then it took a sour turn a little bit. When a woman, a demon-possessed woman, is following after him, Paul exercises the demon. Paul loves the slave girl. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, until you get in the way between men and their money. And those made men then went and dragged Paul. Paul was beaten. He was treated unjustly. He was thrown into prison, thrown in bonds. But the Lord showed up. The Lord showed up, first of all, while he was even in bonds and gave him internal peace. Then the Lord showed up. The Lord showed up again by shaking the prison. Then the Lord showed up. The Lord changed the Philippian jailer's heart. And this made man of Rome repented, was baptized, and played the role of a hospitable host. God did incredible work in Philippi. Then Paul left. Where did he go? Paul took off for Thessalonica. Where does he go in Thessalonica? to the synagogue, as was his custom. Why? Because Paul knows that pagans don't worship the one true God. And Paul knows that there are a bunch of people who are moralists, who are worshiping the God of the Old Testament in synagogues, who need to worship the one true God. And so Paul, maybe he's a glutton for punishment because this is where persecution comes from. He goes to the synagogue and he preaches. And what ends up happening there? P 
people in Thessalonica believe there's some men, there's some women. But pretty soon the made men in that town don't like the fact that their power is being eroded. So these jealous men do what you've seen in Minneapolis or in Portland. They went out and went to the marketplace and found men of the rabble, it says. And they paid them money to do what? To be paid protesters. And these paid protesters went through the city. They, 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 they grabbed a crowd. Now it's a mob. Now they're disrupting the city. And they're accusing Paul and Silas and Timothy of incredibly bad things in their eyes. And I think Paul and Timothy and Silas are going, hmm, all right, kind of like this. Those men, they say they have another king. Paul's going, well, I may not have said that. Maybe I did, but I do. And those men, they're, they're, they're turning the whole world upside down. And Paul says, well, I didn't mean to cause problems, but maybe I am. Maybe it's going right side up. Well, before you know it, this mob goes and they go to Jason's house. They're ready to take out Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Those men must have gotten some, some special information. They're gone. So they bring Jason before and they make Jason pay some hush money or some bond money, put up some money that if any problem ever happens, he's going to lose that. And from that point on, Paul never goes back to Thessalonica again that we know of. So what does Paul do? Gets back on his horse and goes to Berea. And where does he go? The synagogue. Why? You got to get this. Because there are going to be people in Athens who don't go to synagogues who need to worship the one true God. And there are people in Berea in synagogues who need to learn to worship the one true God. You ready for this? You may be religious. You may be spiritual. You may be a worshiper. This may be your thing. And you may be here today and you need to worship the one true God. And he may be unknown to you. So Paul goes and he preaches and the text says those are noble Bereans. Why are they more noble than Thessalonica? Because they did three things. This is the whole sermon in and of itself. Bonus. You don't have to tithe extra for this one. They received the word of God eagerly. I'm glad you're here. I'm looking around doing some nonverbal communication with you. You're smiling, most of you. Good. You're, you're still. The sermon hasn't gone that long. You're receiving it eagerly. But they're wise agnostics. They're Christian skeptics. And you should be too. You shouldn't accept one thing that I tell you from this pulpit without going back to the scriptures and seeing if these things are so. And so therefore, do that with me, please. Do that with the books that you're buying, the television evangelists that you're watching, those people you're sending money for, to for them to send you the prayer handkerchiefs. Go to the Bible. They're called noble because they received the word they were honorable skeptics who said, you're going to have to prove that to me from the scriptures because that's infallible. You're fallible. And they did it daily. That would be a great, great, great New Year's resolution for you. Lord, I want to be eager, skeptical, and in the word every single day. Well, the same thing happens there. More disciples are made. More enemies are made. And Paul 
takes off. They escort him down to the seaport, and it's not clear, but either by boat or by land, by sea or by land, he is now escorted to Athens. Now, he's escorted there by himself because he leaves his brothers behind. And as soon as he gets there, he looks at this city and he says, go get the fellas. I'm going to need them. So what does Paul do while he is there? Paul knows the history of Athens. For 600 years, this has been a world-class city. He knows the prominence. This is a, a capital city. This has been given freedom. It's a free state in the eyes of Rome. He knows the educational acclaim. It's home to four different schools. Zeno, Epicurus. We've got Aristotle, Socrates, Plato who come from this city. And he's waiting for Silas and Timothy, so he hits the road. I remember when I did this in London. I got to go to London somewhere around the 2008 year for the first time. And as a guy that had never been over there, can you imagine? I went to school all day long, and then at night I got to hit the tube. And I went into the city. And I had arrived up there at Regent or at Oxford, I can't remember. And when you walked up, you just saw the majestic buildings, the monuments. You would be able to walk down Piccadilly and then you would end up at Trafalgar Square and there you see the mass of people and you would see the magicians and you could go to the, the museums and you could go to the different cathedrals. I got to walk around Wembley Stadium once and was too cheap to buy a ticket for England versus Germany in a World Cup qualifier and I can't, I shoot myself to this day that I didn't go to that game. Paul must have done the same thing as he's walking through Athens and he's looking at the monuments. He's looking at the buildings. He's looking at the topography with the gorgeous blue Aegean Sea and then he's looking up there at the hill. He's open eyes as he's looking around and as he's analyzing the culture, what do we see next? A broken heart. He's not enthralled with their schools. He's not enthralled with their wealth. Art is wonderful, but what he sees is he looks at the city with the eyes of the Father and with the eyes of the Son, like when Jesus was coming down the mountain and looking at Jerusalem, and he just cried. He wept. Because what did he see? He saw a city that was full. One commentator says it's a forest of idols. Another commentary says this, that it would be easier to walk down the main street of Athens and find a God than it would be a human. Here are all of these people that for centuries have been living on borrowed fame and borrowed collateral, and yet they're still chasing all of their gods. And Paul sees the altar to an unknown God. And he scratches his head and says, isn't that even ironic that they don't even know all the gods that they're trying to worship? With his open eyes, he has a broken heart and he cries. He can't stand that these people are giving glory to another, that they're robbing God of what belongs to him. He can't stand it that Satan is probably sitting there laughing, going, suckers. And then he sees the damage that happens when you put all of your trust and all of your significance, all of your hope, all of your value in something other than God. You are a depressed person laying on a sofa waiting to happen. 
because nothing ever satisfies. And Paul knows it except for Jesus. So it says Paul suffers a paroxuno. He's deeply troubled, internally agitated, and provoked in his spirit. Have you ever been broken when you look at people chasing idols? Man, I saw this about three years ago in Taiwan. And so there I am at a conference, and I get to go to a Hindu temple, and I say, I get to go. I guess I'm glad I went. The darkness that seemed to be in the air, that humming low chant. People bringing food for the gods. As you walked in closer and closer, you heard the tambourines and the drums, and more and more people are falling prostrate. And then you finally get close to the temple, and you find 20 to 30 of these elderly ladies that are all dressed in that monk's garb of sorts, prostrating themselves down before what? These grotesque figures laden in gold as they are praying to these people, and you just feel the weight. I can tell you about when I used to live in West Palm Beach in Wellington and you would go and you would go on the island and you would see all the people trusted in their yachts and their houses. And you would see these ladies who just couldn't grow old gracefully because they're grabbing on to the God of youth somehow. I see this when I watch sports and you see men retire and some just go on about their married business, but others lose their identity. They have nothing else to live for. Middle-aged men chasing significance in midlife. Addicts chasing a high. It'll break your heart to go with Scott on one of his Commandment 11 trips and see men who have prostituted themselves and sacrificed everything for the drink. Even Brittany is still on Netflix trying hard to, to regain the glory that gave her significance or the wealth that she wants, that if she gets, she knows she'll be happy. That's when Paul had some holy sweat. Yeah, I know the brothers aren't here, but he can't wait for them. So it's now man versus city. You've heard man versus food? This is man versus city. And Paul says, fellas, you better hurry up, but I'm going on without you. And Paul, what does he do? He goes to work. If he looked outside and saw all the idols in Greenville, Paul would say, I'm leaving the building and I'm going to the synagogue. Then he'd say, I'm leaving the religious building called the synagogue and I'm going to the marketplace. And I'm doing this every day, the text says. Why? What drives him? He has the heart of the father and he has the heart of the son. And so he's here engaging in dialogue philosophical ramblings. You can read commentaries who will tell you Paul went off the rails and did wrong. I'm not joking. They will say Paul got engaged in some philosophical conversations in this city and he should have just preached the word. And Paul knew that because when he finally gets to Corinthians at his next stop, he will say, I preached nothing before you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. I don't believe that for a moment. There are different ways to preach to different kinds of audiences. And look at the verbs that are used here. 
It says Paul reasoned in verse 17, conversed in verse 18, preached in verse 18, taught in verse 19, presented in verse 20, and brought strange things to their ears in verse 20. And he did this in lots of different locations every single day. And this is not some carbon copy of where he went and preached his sermon like an evangelist. This is a, a summary. But Paul went to work and he went to work teaching and he went to work preaching. But notice that he did so with cultural flexibility. Paul did not wait for them to come to his holy house, but he went to where they were. Paul then started with where they were. He decided not. When he's in the synagogue, you've already seen that he starts with the Old Testament scriptures. When he's out of the synagogue in the marketplace, he doesn't. He starts with that common ground. I see that you people are religious. <laughs> I'm religious too. And I see that you're so religious that you have an altar to the unknown God. I've, I've read your clippings. I saw it on social media. I walked by it. Hey, Let's talk about that, because you're obviously interested in talking about it. I'm here to tell you who that unknown God is. It's cultural flexibility. He became all things to all men that he might reach some. Paul, the Jew of Jews, put aside his Jewishness for the day. Paul, who'd be very comfortable in the suit behind the wooden pulpit with an organ, wore tight jeans and, and sang with the praise band. Paul did not preach an exegetical message. Paul did what was most uncomfortable for him. He exited the comfort zone. Paul became a Greek that he might win Greeks. He never compromised the truth in any way. But he translated the truth in a way that this people that he were his mission field could better understand. And this is in the DNA of Horizon Church. And I am new to this after three years and loving it. So one day, maybe the tight jeans will come and the wool pants with pleats will come off. Maybe not. But I'm loving figuring out how never to monkey around with the text of Scripture and the gospel. But how can we become Greenvillians that we might meet, reach Greenvillians? How can we be people in the 21st century that don't look like we're in the 19th century? How can we communicate and never take one iota away from God's Word and compromise, but be the most professional at giving people what they need in a palatable form? Thank God for Jim and the founding elders here for your long history, how much fun it is to figure this out. But notice... There was cultural flexibility. Meanwhile, there was transcultural proclamation. He presented the creator, the ruler, and the revealer. I'm going to have to speed up here. There's only one creator. That's the unknown God that you guys don't know. And he rules over all. That's the unknown God that you don't know. And he's not that far away from you. As a matter of fact, he's been yelling at you all your life. The heavens declare the glory of God. Your conscience knows he's there. You're writing it. You have an altar to him. You should be seeking him, groping after him, trying to find him. That's the right thing for you to do. 
but he's the offended party. In Romans, Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed against all men everywhere who know there's the true God, but instead reject what they can learn from him and from the scriptures and then replace him with idols. But Paul says there's very good news. The one who is coming one day to judge has already come. And he commands you to repent. What does that look like? He commands you to get rid of all the vain silver and gold that have no mouths to speak, no ears to hear, no eyes to see. They have no hands to help. They can do nothing for you. Why don't you just get rid of all that and come over here to that which is life, for in him we move and live and have our being. And so you have a choice now. This is the good news of the gospel. You either stand condemned as an idolater under the judge who is coming, or you stand in truth as an idolater, hugged by the grace of Jesus Christ, who grants you salvation full and free. He grants you grace to all who repent. So Paul preaches this message, and what happened? The varied response. Some said, <laughs> not interested. In the language, he actually looked at him and said, you're like this backwoods hick. You're a gutter pecker. You're someone who just steals morsels from someone else and spouts it out. You have no original ideas of your own. We were really not that impressed with your uh, education, Paul. Others were a little bit more honorable, but no more helped. Did you hear how I said that? If you're here and you're rejecting this, you're in trouble with Christ. But if you're here like the second group and you're a little bit more honorable, but you're not helped, it still doesn't help you. Because they said, huh, we're not going to make a decision on that. We'll hear more later. Procrastinators. But then there were some. Like Lydia. Like the jailer in his household. Who heard and believed. And on that day, they were idolaters saved from their idolatry. So that's what it looks like to understand the text in Athens quickly. How does this apply to you? First, what is an idol? G.K. Chesterton said, when men stop believing in the one true God, it's not that they don't believe in anything, but they believe in anything and everything. Every single person here has something to give them identity, community, purpose, fulfillment, and satisfaction. Oh, every single person here has one true God. You don't get the privilege of not having one true God. He is your God. But every person here has a consistent tendency to forsake the one true God, listen to the lies of Satan, and add to them other little deities or idols that are going to somehow give meaning to their life. So what are our idols? Oh, they could be evil little demonic things that we carve out and, and put up on a mantle. Or idols can be really, really good things that God gives us, but we love the gift more than the giver and we turn them into ultimate things. Things for which we will sacrifice our time, talent, treasure, and thoughts. Things that dominate our lives and they become Lord of our lives. Things that we're miserable without. Good things like relationships. Like you've got to have that girl. 
You've got to join that fraternity. You must get in that sorority. Life's not worth living unless you're marriage. I want out of my marriage because I want to be in bed with that other person. Uh, I, I must have children. I must have my children. I can't live without my parents. All of those are good things that get turned into idols. Feelings like the buzz, the orgasm, the thrill or comfort. Possessions like money, a house, a new house. Anybody know anyone who has a new house? It doesn't satisfy, but if I get the hot tub, then I'll be happy forever. Oh, wait, then I'm going to need that fire pit next to the hot tub. Things don't satisfy. Reputation, be it the applause of men, fame, skills like throwing things, like Tom Brady, singing, looking pretty. In one book written by Tim Keller, I wrote for myself, I have to be the best at what because it does what for me. And that was a sentence I wrote to deal with my own idolatry. I need to be the best at pastoring. I need to be the best at preaching. I need to be the best church planter. What is it that I, I absolutely must be successful at in order for me to find significance? Some it's power. It could be traditions. It could be physical health. It could be healing. Could be education, degrees. Could be I need a new leader, maybe a new president, and then it'll be okay. Our idol could be planet Earth, world peace, or as is the case in this room, your idol could be freedom. And life's not worth living if someone takes away my freedom, but if I can get my freedom back, well, that's what I'm trusting in. I say in God we trust, but really, it's in a conservative America that I trust. Either way, around it, it's like Lord of the Rings, where we're trying to find that one ring that will make us happy, and that ring could be in a cave somewhere. That ring could be your class ring. That ring could be your Clemson ring. That ring could be a, a Super Bowl ring. It could be the marriage ring, but somehow I'm miserable. But if I could just have the ring, what is it for us that we absolutely must have that without it, we're miserable? That's our idol. For me, it was being a pastor, being a preacher, having a pulpit, knowing my doctrine, getting my degrees, having a reputation, leaving behind a legacy. For me, it was institutional winning. And I can still bow my knee before that idol and it never satisfies. And you're not good enough to satisfy. And no one is. But when God does his work in my life and I slaughter those idols and I find him, then I can enjoy all of those good things he gives to whatever degree he gives for however long that he gives it until he takes it away. So what is it? What are your idols? I think you know what they are. How satisfying are they? Really satisfying. Really. That's why we like them. Today, a little less satisfying tomorrow. Then we find that we were discontent without them, and now we find we're discontent with them. And so like John Calvin says, what do we do? Time to make a new one. 
What does the law say regarding our idols? God hates idolatry. The wrath of God is coming because we're idolaters. But what does God do about our idolatry? He sends Jesus Christ with the gospel that says, you don't have to get rid of your idolatry in order for me to love you. How many, can I get, talk back to me, can I get an amen a little bit for that one? Oh, you should get rid of them. They're heinous. They're wrong. But Jesus Christ comes in and says, I see you people who are tempted and are guilty of being idolatrous, and I am the only person on the planet who never worshipped anything but my Father. I give that righteousness to you. And then, why don't you give all of your putrid idolatry to me, and I'll wear it. And Jesus Christ looked like an Athenian, Greenvillian idolater. And the Father pummeled the Son. That's how much the Father hates what idolatry does in you, to you, with you, around you, through you. He killed Jesus Christ because idolatry is no laughing matter. That what? That we might, for the rest of our lives, learn to be like Paul, who says, I've learned the secret, or I'm learning the secret of being content. Whether I'm abounding or abased, whether I'm rich, whether I'm poor, whether I'm hungry or whether I'm starving, it doesn't seem to matter because none of those things are my idols anymore. I've learned I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I don't know if God's going to give you that man, girls. I don't know if God's going to restore your marriage. I don't know if God's going to heal you when the elders pray for you. I don't know if that addiction's going away fast or if it's going to be slow going. I don't know if your parents are going to make it through this COVID season. I don't know if you're going to be able to have that child. I don't know if this church is going to grow by depreciation or grow by appreciation. I have no clue. But this I know. Satan is screaming, chase another idol, chase another idol. And Jesus says, I am God and I will love you. Come to me. And so we hear the final voice when we ask the question, the final, we come to the final point when we hear, what says Jesus, Paul, and Joe? You see how I like to name drop? The three of us wise men look at you and say, believe and repent. Like the prodigal son, get out of the pit and go see your father. And will you then pray for open eyes, a broken heart, holy sweat, and cultural flexibility. All around us are people who are dying with their idols, and then they will eternally die as idolaters. Let's ask God for open eyes broken hearts, sweaty palms. And let's figure out how to get out into the upstate and into the marketplaces, sing their songs, learn their philosophers, quote their poets, talk about their idols, 
And let's be a church that points them to Jesus Christ. And if today you are one who realizes again for the 75,000th time that your idols don't work and you're miserable and you want to be introduced to the one true God, maybe that's why today is the day for you to let all your other gods go and worship the unknown God who knows you 